1: RFM. How are you doing? How are you doing? Maybe I muted myself. I thought there's this deal that goes on that we all get muted when the intro plays and sometimes it unmutes and sometimes it doesn't. And tonight it didn't. So I accept no responsibility for that. Yeah. Um, yeah, not <laughs> your fault. <laughs> I probably clicked mute before you did. Anyway, anyway, was, so was, to like be treated. here tonight. What's that? It's great to be here tonight. If that's the smallest technological problem we have in tonight's show, then I will count myself thrice blessed.
0: Look at that three times. There you go. Um, Excited folks for this conversation. For those of you who are joining us, maybe for the first time or are new, uh, we spend every episode talking about things in Mormon history. uh, In uh, current events, for instance, we have conversations with uh, authors and scholars. We interview people who have been uh, who have been Mormon or are Mormon and have had unique experiences uh, within the faith. Uh, I think we do a great job doing a show here. And uh, I just uh, wanted to note that tonight's episode, what we're going to do is we're going to list in sort of rapid fire, uh, in a rapid fire conversation, various issues in Mormonism where the church held a view that uh Pertained in some way to its truth claims. And things happened, things came to light, Uh, new information came about where those old stances no longer were tenable. And the church and its apologists then create a new narrative. They move the goalpost essentially and create a new way for it to fit. And when you start to see these over and over and over again, you start to sense like this is the playbook. This is the playbook that the Mormon Church has, uh, that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints plays by, and I think it will be useful for all of us to see uh, these kind of laid out that way. Any thoughts from you, RFM, before we begin?
1: Yeah, this is an excellent and very interesting lineup that you have for us tonight with all these different issues, and as I was thinking about them last night and ponderizing upon them, it suddenly (laughs) occurred to me that there was actually a common thread between, I think, everything that you have. I know you added a few more slides um, just in the last few hours. You're always at work. Um, but, and at some point, I want to talk about that as well. But just whenever you're ready, let's go.
0: Sweet. Let me throw this up on the uh, screen. And so what we'll do, there's the the opening one with the image, the thumbnail that we use. But I want to start off by talking about Uh, the Book of Mormon translation. And we all have these little hiccups with like the switch from the Nephite uh, spectacles to the seer stone in the hat. Uh, There are other issues around the translation that there certainly are questions about, but I really want to talk about this idea of imposing a tight translation. And so the Book of Mormon translation was absolutely taught to all of us as a tight translation. And one you can go on Wikipedia, for instance, and you can look up all the pronoun names, or uh, not pronoun names, but all the the personal names of people uh, in the Book names. of Mormon. All the characters, and you can look at like uh, Pekumeni and Mahanri, which Mahanri Moriankomer is the brother of Jared. He's named later in a blessing by Joseph Smith when he gives someone else kind of a blessing with that name. But there, these are places, locations that are in the Book of Mormon. Mahanri and Moriankomer. You got a Benedai and a Benadom. Uh, Sezoram, Helaman, Kishkumen, Lahanti, But even things like Naham depends on a tight translation. When Joseph Smith says, uh, Kurlams and Kumams, and uh, I think it's Orson uh, Pratt who says that he's talking about woolly mammoths and elephants, that only makes sense if it's a tight translation. Uh, The characters of the Anton transcript only make sense if it's a tight translation, but it goes beyond that. You end up with the scribes and those who were present uh, described it as a tight translation. David Whitmer said a piece of something resembling parchment would appear, and on that appeared the writing. One character at a time would appear, and under it was the interpretation in English. Brother Joseph would read off the English to Oliver Cowdery, who was his principal scribe, and when it was written down and repeated to Brother Joseph to see if it was correct, then it would disappear, and another character with the interpretation would appear, David Whitmer. Joseph Knight Sr. Now, the ways he translated was he put the urim and thummim into his hat and darkened his eyes so that he could see the words a sentence at a time. And then Martin Harris explained by the aid of the seer stone, sentences would appear and were read by the prophet and written by Martin. And when finished, he would say written. And if correctly written, that sentence would disappear and another appear in its place. But if not written correctly, it remained until corrected. This all depends on a tight translation. And I just want to note that what happens to the church is that scholars, historians, uh, folks in academia, uh, and those of us on the outside of the church who are criticizing it and picking uh, at things that we're discovering, what happens is that it's overwhelming over time that there is too much 19th century material in the Book of Mormon. And what that does, and along with anachronisms as well, but it imposes that this wasn't a tight translation. It has to be something else. And so then what you end up with is that a loose translation is the apologetic response. And it's created as a secondary explanation used to make the Book of Mormon translation indiscernible from a fraud. And that's a phrase I'm going to use over and over tonight. Uh, Translation indiscernible from a fraud, meaning that the church makes a certain claim when that claim is shown to be not true. The church comes in, in, or it's apologists come in and create a workaround. But that workaround doesn't exactly deal with the data head on. Rather, it makes some space that the church could still be true in spite of the thing that's been discovered. And, and so this is the first one. Any thoughts from you RFM on this one?
1: There are a few. Yes. Uh, Early on, in the early days of the church, when the Book of Mormon was being translated and for quite a while thereafter, the Book of Mormon was clearly understood by everybody, including Joseph Smith, to be a word-for-word translation from the characters that were written on the gold plates. In fact, Joseph Smith's refusal to retranslate the 116 lost pages that we read about in uh, the Doctrine and Covenants is based upon the idea that it is a word-for-word translation that he would be replicating. So it's very clearly a word-for-word translation. In fact, you remember Royal Skousen, not that long ago, completed over a decade of research into the Book of Mormon. He's probably still researching it to come up with his uh, critical edition of the Book of Mormon. There's nobody on the earth, I'm convinced, who knows more about the Book of Mormon than Royal Skousen does. And of course, he's a professor at BYU. I don't know if he's retired at this point, but he certainly was at the time. Um, Royal Skousen is to the Book of Mormon what Dan Vogel is to Joseph Smith. There's nobody on earth you're gonna find who knows more about these things than these individuals. And it was his conclusion after examining all the manuscripts, what's left of the original manuscript, the printer's manuscript, first edition of the Book of Mormon, all the editions thereafter, everything. It was his conclusion that Yes, the Book of Mormon appears to represent a tight translation. And what the early witnesses say matches that. One of the interesting things I thought about this, though, was that it is very interesting that even the earliest witnesses are describing one character, not one word translated, but one character yields a complete sentence. A bunch of words. And actually, I think that Royal Skousen was able to estimate those at 20 to 30 words. Remember Brian Hales in his average of how long the sentences are in the Book of Mormon? Much longer than any other work that he put up there with his comparison. was like 34 words, was it or 40? 32, 30. It was in the low 30s to mid 30s. Yes. Yeah, it was it was very, very long sentences. So every one character on the plates was represented as being translatable into a very long sentence, which then was read back As the witnesses said, and only when it was read back correctly and matched what was Joseph Smith was seeing in the hat, do they go on to the next sentence? So very much a tight translation. But it's interesting that this idea of one character yielding a vast amount of language and information from a set of plates that are said to be written in Egyptian, reformed Egyptian, but Egyptian, carries over into 1835 and thereafter when it comes to the Book of Abraham. And Joseph Smith is seeing characters and deriving vast amounts of information, like a full paragraph of information from a single character. This seems to have been something that was consistent in his view.
0: Yeah. I'm just going to throw uh, back up here. The, the next, so let me just kind of close that one off, which is all throughout, uh, kind of the early time in the church, you, me, everyone else, we all understood it to be a tight translation. It's only in the last decade, decade, maybe and a half, where everyone is wrestling with the fact that there is so much 19th century material in the Book of Mormon, including things like Joseph Smith Sr.'s dream and sermons from down the road in Palmyra, um, uh, certain things that seem to match up the components of Joseph Smith's own family dynamics with his brothers. Uh, And his family Bible. Yeah, the family Bible, so the King James Version. Uh, You end up with certain New Testament scriptures being used in Moroni. And so there's so much there that doesn't fit into a tight translation that now you'll have apologists saying like, no, it's a loose translation. And they'll use loose translation when that's convenient, tight translation when that's convenient. But they are constantly kind of shifting that to whatever works best for whatever question they're getting. The second one here, RFM, is the Book of Abraham. And there's a couple of things around this that uh, strike a note with me, but I want to see what your thoughts are in terms of what the narrative was told to us, what changed that made that not workable anymore, and what did the church and its
1: apologists do? I'm so sorry. Uh, was that a question to me, Mr. Real? It, it is a question to you. What, I'm what have about to have... <laughs> You caught me no. flat-footed. I was thinking about the fact that I needed to tie off something and say that even though this was an idea that was held in Joseph Smith's day, that uh, Egyptian was an ideographic language and each symbol could contain large amounts of information. Joseph Smith wasn't the only person to believe that. Others believe that as well. But the fact of the matter is, no matter how many people believed it, and no matter how many prophets believed it, that was wrong.
0: Yeah. And speaking of Egyptian, uh, here on the book of Abraham, uh, run us through... What were the truth claims the church made around the book of Abraham? What changed so that that was no longer tenable? And then how did the apologist in the how did the church adapt?
1: I was just explaining this to somebody over the weekend who was not really familiar with the whole idea. But the fact is the book of Abraham, Joseph Smith presented as translating from Egyptian scrolls that had come into his possession in Kirtland, Ohio, in 1835. And I think we all know the story. But this was a translation. Now there was a bump in the road around 1912 or 1913 involving the facsimiles. We won't go there, but in 1967, everything got thrown topsy turvy when a portion of the papyri was rediscovered in the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art and was donated to the church. And all of a sudden now we have actual, the actual papyri that Joseph Smith had in his possession. And immediately, people wanted to translate it, people who knew how to do it now, right? Um, Egyptologists. And they found out through translating it, it has nothing to do with the contents of the book of Abraham. In fact, it's rather an ordinary kind of funeral document called a book of breathings in order to guide the person with whom it is buried through the afterlife so they can arrive at the good place and be able to uh, be saved. Let's put it that way and live forever. So having said that, now what do we do? Because most people, Bill, most people, if they're unbiased and just looking at things and they're not motivated reasoners, they would look at this and say, well, this seems to be the death nail in the book of Abraham. Obviously, it's not a translation from the papyri like Joseph Smith said it was case closed. But no. The motivated reasoners, which means faithful members of the LDS Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, cannot accept that conclusion. That is the one conclusion. It's the most obvious conclusion, but it's also the conclusion that's ruled off the table at the outset. That cannot be the conclusion. Any other conclusion is going to be preferable, no matter how unreasonable it might be. So we started having people come forward and saying, well, yeah, these are some of the papyrus. But we obviously don't have the papyrus from which joseph smith translated the book of abraham why because the book of abraham isn't on the papyrus we have it's a bit circular but there you have it and we don't have everything that joseph smith had some of it apparently was burned up in the chicago fire but then other people come along and this happens in the course of a couple of years after 67 and 68 and 69 and they start looking at it and say well wait a second We actually can prove, we're not going to do that here, folks, just so you know, we've done this before and it's been done and you can go to other episodes that we've done or other people have done for the details on this. But we can actually look at the papyrus that we do have because we've got the vignette that's facsimile number one that is on the papyrus that was rediscovered. And we can actually look at that and we can find out and determine that yes this is the piece of papyrus that joseph smith used to translate the first part of the book of abraham well it's got nothing in there it doesn't even have the name of the book of abraham now there are some people who still keep with that theory there are fewer and fewer and john gee who was the main proponent a doctor of egyptology at byu he was the main proponent of that theory for many years and now he's come to the point where he's sort of saying well maybe it is and maybe it's not Because there's a new theory. It's the cavalry. It's on the horizon. It's coming to save the day. And that new theory is the catalyst theory. And the catalyst theory says, hey, look, of course, it's not anything like what's in the book of Abraham, because that's not what Joseph Smith was doing. Joseph Smith wasn't actually translating from Egyptian characters into English for the book of Abraham. You know, look out for what this might do to the Book of Mormon but we won't talk about that. We're just going to talk about the book of Abraham. He wasn't actually translating from the characters. Instead, it was the possession of the papyri itself that catalyzed this inspiration and revelation in Joseph Smith. And even though Joseph Smith thought he was translating what's on the characters, Joseph Smith was wrong. But what God was really doing was he was giving him a revelation, separate and independent and apart from what was written on the scrolls. In order to give Joseph Smith an authentic history about Abraham.
0: If That's the catalyst I, theory. If I wanted to know the difference in terms of not what's inside Joseph's head, because we can't get there, I can only look at what's happening in the visible world around me. What would be the how would I perceive the difference between a fraudulent, pretended translation of an Egyptian funeral scroll
1: into the book of Abraham versus a catalyst theory? No difference. You could, there is no difference because the facts that support each theory are identical for the catalyst theory. You have a scroll and you have a translation of the scroll and the translation of the scroll has absolutely nothing to do with what was on the papyrus. If it's a fraud, you have a papyrus and you have a translation and what's written on the papyrus has absolutely nothing to do with what's in the translation. It's the exact same facts. That's why the catalyst theory is indiscernible from a fraud. Yeah. And it's on multiple
0: levels, right? Like one of them is that we were told these were the writings of Abraham written by his own hand upon the virus. Yes. And, and that was the old stance that was imposed on us. But then when that doesn't match, we sort of go, well, we're going to kind of ignore that. We're not going to say that anymore. It's not the writings of Abraham written by his own hand. We're going to take that out. So you have. The way in which the document was framed to us—that's incorrect. But then, on top of that, you have all of these facsimiles, all of these uh, pictorials on the images, and Joseph Smith decides to tell the world what every one of these things means. And on yes. maybe two of them, there is a close enough plausible connection that apologists see it as a bullseye. When in reality, it's sort of a
1: one-off. And Bill, if I can just throw in right there, apologists seeing bullseyes with that, that means a tight translation. You can't have both. You don't get to have a catalyst theory and a tight translation at the same time. If, he, if there are a couple of things that have some kind of general um, similarity to what's in Egyptian, and I think we both know what we're talking about here, and you've got 50 things that don't the two things don't make up for the 50 things that you don't have. Rather, they highlight the fact that the other 50 things are completely wrong. Yeah. If if you can get two things right, why do you get 50 things wrong? Coincidence okay. is a word that comes to mind.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so not only does the church and its apologists no longer want to deal with because the goalpost have been moved, deal with the fact that these were supposed to be the writings of Abraham written by his own hand. But also they don't really want to sit in a long conversation discussing openly about how much of these items that Joseph uh, attributed uh, an English translation to ended up not being anything close to what he said.
1: Right. And if you have a second here, oh, I love this slide. Oh, we're, we'll get that slide here yeah, in a second. You're good. Okay, so this starts to illustrate what came to me last night as I was just thinking about these different examples that you've come up with. And it seems to me that there is a common thread between them all. And I want to suggest this here as a way to perhaps not be or avoid being deceived by a fraud, whether it's a church, whether it's a religion, whether it's anything actually. This has, I think, a large application. It just happens to be something that's directly out of the LDS church's playbook and something they use over and over and over again, which I think tonight will demonstrate. So here's what I call it. I call it a retreat from the specific. And what that means is this, is that the church has made throughout its history a number of specific claims about various things. But there's a specific claim out there. First specific claim about the book of Abraham, it was written by Abraham, right? Because it says, I Abraham. Then we come along with the problem. Okay, so that's the specific claim. But once that specific claim gets contradicted in a way that really can't be gainsaid, now what the church does or what the proponent of that specific claim does, they could say, oh, you're right. I guess that claim was wrong. That's not something the church is famous for doing. Instead, what the church does is it's now going to take away that specific claim and instead, it's going to make a more generalized claim within which that specific claim is subsumed, but also that can account for other different kinds of claims. And that sounds like a lot of words. And um, I thought of this image. I think it's a variation of the Texas sharpshooter fallacy, right? Mm. And the Texas sharpshooter fallacy, if you got the broad side of a barn, you shoot at the barn and then wherever your bullet hits, you paint a target around it, right? that's the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. This is a little bit different. So what we have here is a specific claim and we'll make this a bullseye, just a little red dot, or is it yellow? We'll make it a yellow dot. And you've got your claim right there on the side of the barn. And all of a sudden something happens, something comes along either refuting that claim, Or that claim becomes problematic for a different reason. And we'll have some of those tonight as well. But whatever happens is that claim becomes no longer viable in that little yellow bullseye. So what the church will do is it will not say, oh, I guess we were wrong about that claim. Instead, it will back up a little bit and it will paint another circle. Let's say a blue circle around that yellow bullseye and we've all seen what a target looks like, right? And that's what we're going to. This is more like an archery target, I think, with different colors. So now we're going to back up and we're going to make that claim more general so that whatever the problem is with the original claim now is not a problem with this bigger claim. And if this bigger claim now becomes problematic, which frequently they do, then you paint another circle around that And that could be um, a green circle or whatever color you like. But the idea is that you keep retreating from your original claim and making it broader and broader and more generalized so that it can not be refuted by the evidence that contradicts the original claim. And this is a great example. We've talked about the original claim. Yeah, it's written by Abraham upon Papyrus and this is his autobiography. Yeah. We got that. I understood that. That makes sense. That's what Joseph Smith taught. It's what everybody taught back then. It was their understanding of what was going on. But then we find out, for one thing, we find out that actually the papyrus is not that old. It doesn't go back to Abraham. It only goes to around 300 BCE or so. Maybe 1500 years, which is really quite a long time when you stop and think about it. 1500 years after the time when Abraham was supposed to have lived. That's a problem. So what does the church do? Does it say, okay, that's wrong? Uh, well, no, it just sort of makes it a little bit more generalized and says, well, nobody ever said that Abraham actually wrote with his hand on this papyrus, even though that's a straightforward meaning of written by his hand upon papyrus. Okay. No, uh, it's it's like a, an author of a book, you know, and whatever book you want to you wanna mention, if it's a Stephen King book, I like Stephen King books, right? I've got a bunch of Stephen King books and I bring out a Stephen King book and I say, this is written by Stephen King, but it doesn't mean he wrote every word on every page of this book. No, it was printed and then distributed. So they'll use that excuse. That's another circle. And then you get back to the papyrus is not matching what's in the revelation or excuse me, in the book of Abraham translation. There's no matching between right now we've got to make it more generalized. And now we've got to talk about a catalyst theory. And the problem is, is that once you get this target, once you've got so many circles around this target, you get to a point where the target is so big that it has lost all meaning. And I define losing all meaning as when your answer to the problem is indistinguishable or indiscernible, as you use that word, from fraud. Once you get to that point, you've lost the game. You may as well go home, in my opinion. Because obviously, you are so governed by motivated reasoning that you will not reach the rational conclusion, even though it's staring you right in the face. You'll just keep drawing more and more circles around your target.
0: Right. And, you know, here we are, we're two in. So the Book of Mormon translation didn't match what they told us, so then they created a new definition. The book of Abraham didn't match what they told us, so they simply created a new definition. And in each of these instances, the new definition tries and, and often does explain all of the contradictory evidence the same way the critic would, obviously with a different conclusion. But it also accounts for at least portions of the data that weren't that weren't uh, uh, accounted for before with other with other ways of framing it. And so here we'll move on to the third one. We've got a bunch of them. So this is Joseph Smith's treasure digging. This is an image out of the glass looker. We interviewed uh, the author of that. Um, I think he's put out a, num- a second book now too. So, uh, But the Joseph Smith's treasure digging. And I'll pull up here another slide. The church at first tried to minimize Joseph Smith's treasure digging. Remember the $14 a month? Joseph did it for a short time. He walked away. But then folks like Dan Vogel come along and they write deep, historical commentaries showing the data on the multiple numerous treasure digs that happened in Palmyra, New York.
1: And don't forget the denials that had ever happened from Joseph Fielding Smith and and people like him. And he was the church historian. There were simply straight up denials. And that's usually how these things start. They start up with straight up denials and then evidence accumulates and then things start changing.
0: Yeah. And so they, uh, The trouble with treasure digging is that it demonstrates that Joseph is using fictional tall tales and fictional treasures to manipulate and deceive people. Also, it matches too closely. I look over on the far right there of the image. It's it's another buried, the, the gold plates in the story with Moroni is another story of buried treasures that have the use of the seer stone in play. That used the hat because the treasure digging stories also report that Joseph's putting the stone in the hat and blocking out light. The 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 gold plates was also protected by a guardian spirit, Moroni, and it was buried in a hill. And this is all the same data points that Joseph uses over and over again in his treasure digging. And what the average, you know, person looking at this with a critical eye would go. What Joseph Smith is doing in his earlier days of treasure digging seems to be the same sort of thing he's doing with Moroni and the gold plates. And hence, it is almost assuredly a deception, just like the earlier practices were. But then you end up with someone like Mark Ashurst McGee, who comes along and he tries to reconcile the issue. And he says that treasure digging was a training ground for Joseph Smith, that By Joseph Smith playing in all of this fictional folklore magic, uh, by him practicing treasure digging and deceiving people, he was learning to trust in the things he couldn't see. Mm -hmm. And so what you end up with is, again, a new way of framing the issue, walking back from the claims the church made, which was Joseph Smith wasn't really a treasure digger. He didn't do much of it. He walked away from it. Of course, somebody restoring the gospel wouldn't be doing these things. And then when the evidence becomes overwhelming, we create a new narrative, we move the goalpost once again, we create a new narrative that explains the earlier problems in a way that still allows faith and makes it on this issue indiscernible from a fraud. Okay, next. The new and everlasting uh, covenant. Um, You and I were talking on the phone today about this. I went back into all of the, there's a, I don't know if the website is offhand. If somebody knows it offhand, please put it in the links because uh, it's a great place to look up old conference talks as much as Oaks and Ballard like to talk about how uh,
1: this. Conference corpus.
0: Yes, you got it. Nailed it. And you can search up anything all the way back. Anything said in general conference uh, will be in there. And I looked up before 1970. Yeah, 1972 or something, right? Seventy one, I think, is as early yeah. as the church
1: website goes,
0: right? And uh, when I looked up the new and everlasting covenant, I found hundreds of quotes. And what I what I have always thought is that the new and everlasting covenant is plural marriage. And when I went back to find these quotes, that is, uh, at least in part, absolutely true. What I mean by that is this: the new and everlasting covenant has been changed. It used to mean, at least in part, plural marriage, and today it's been changed to mean the gospel of Jesus Christ and sealing powers and uh, uh, eternal marriage, but not requiring that plural marriage be part of that definition, right? But when you go back to the early uh, church documentation, you see that new and everlasting covenant is used to represent uh, sealing power and The gospel, in some ways, but it always seems to also include and not be able to be separated from plural marriage. And uh, I want to show some of these quotes. So here we have Joseph F. Smith. Some people have supposed that the doctrine of plural marriage was a sort of superfluity. Is that how I say that right? Great. Or non essential to salvation or exaltation of mankind. I want here to enter my solemn protest against this idea, for I know it is
1: false. See, Joseph F. Smith, in the Tabernacle, July 7th, 1878, is saying what church leaders taught back then, which is that the doctrine of plural marriage is not an extra. It's not a superfluity. It's not a non-essential. It is essential to the idea of salvation and exaltation of mankind. These are the kind of quotes you don't hear about in church meetings nowadays or in general conference.
0: Because the definition, it's a sleight of hand. Uh, They told you to focus over here, right, and actually the trick is going on in the other hand.
1: Right, here's the Um, narrow, here's that narrow target, right? This is what New and Everlasting Covenant means, and when you get in trouble with that, because now we're not practicing polygamy anymore, and if polygamy is or has to include, be included in the New and Everlasting Covenant, then we're out of luck because we don't have the new and everlasting covenant anymore. Okay. We're going to broaden it and make it the entire gospel. Yeah. By the way, another thing that's just like that bill, which I thought of right before the show, uh, the book of Mormon first Nephi, great and abominable, the great and abominable church. What was that? According to church leaders, including Bruce R. McConkie and The Book of Mormon seems to be describing it, which is the Catholic Church. It is. Of course it's the Catholic Church. I mean, my gosh, you'd have to be uh, blind, deaf, and dumb not to realize that that's the Catholic Church being described there. And in fact, that's what Bruce McConkie and all the leaders of the church for many, many decades said until that became problematic. Now, this wasn't problematic because it was quote-unquote refuted like other examples, but because it became politically problematic. And we didn't want to be slamming the Catholic Church so overtly. So the definition then changed from the specific Catholic church to, oh, now it's just describing any organization of whatever kind, religious or political or any kind of an organization that's opposed to the true church of God. It's the same playbook. You see it over and over again. Yeah. And these quotes get worse. Uh, Brigham Young,
0: now where a man in this church says, I don't want but one wife. I will live my religion with one. He will perhaps be saved in the celestial kingdom, but when he gets there, he will not find himself in possession of any wife at all. And he will remain single forever and ever. Uh, Orson Pratt. He's going to
1: be in one of the two lower levels of the celestial kingdom is what Brigham Young is alluding to, of course.
0: Yeah. Uh, Orson Pratt. If plurality of marriage is not true, or in other words, if a man has no divine right to marry two wives or more in this world, then marriage for eternity is not true. That is so
1: important. That's why you highlighted it, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Because eternal marriage was synonymous with plural marriage. We just heard it from Brigham Young. If you marry only one wife and you don't take another wife in this life, you may go to the celestial kingdom, but you won't be in the top level. And you'll end up there with no wife at all, because she'll be taken from you and given to somebody else. And Orson Pratt is repeating the same idea here.
0: When section 132 is given to the saints, it not only is eternal marriage, but it is in a cancerous knot with plural marriage. They're not separable. And that's what these teachings are trying to say. The church wants to say, it's just eternal marriage, but they're playing word games. And we'll even see by the couple, the other two quotes here, uh, that 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 becomes quite apparent. Uh, So Orson Pratt finishes off, and your faith is all vain and all the sealing ordinances and powers pertaining to marriage for eternity are vain, worthless, good for nothing. Brigham Young, monogamy or restrictions by law to one wife is no part of the economy of heaven among men, right? So I'm gonna get to the end here. It is the only popular religion there for this is the religion of Abraham. And unless we do the works of Abraham, we are not his seed and heirs according to his promise. We believe in Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. The whole, if you want to read the whole quote, pause it, read it. But Brigham Young is absolutely talking about polygamy. But here's the here's the second biggest quote of the of the two big ones. Uh, this is Franklin D. Richards. Do you want to read this one, RFM? Sure. Now, Franklin D. Richards,
1: uh, he was a member of the first presidency, wasn't he? I believe so, but certainly in the top 15. Yeah. It was difficult for men and women from all parts of the world who had lived in the... Mon- My- My- <laughs> now, I'm going to get it. You want to help me with this one? monogamic monogamic sounds good (laughs) okay Mm. it was difficult for men and women from all parts of the world who had lived in monogamy in the monogamic order all their lives to accept this doctrine of the eternity and plurality of marriage well no duh frankly. eternity and plurality again cancerous not very good it was quote a new and everlasting covenant and maybe there's an end quote after that that was omitted And if ye abide not that covenant, then are ye damned, saith the Lord. No, there's the end quote. This was the obligation that was laid upon the prophet Joseph and through him upon the true believers of the church, even all who were worthy to accept of these obligations. It was herein that the elders and their wives extended their faith, enlarged their obedience, and accepted the terms of the new and everlasting covenant. Extending not through time only, but eternity also. Now I ask, who is injured by a man taking a second wife? Well, other than the second wife and the first wife, I'm not sure. Um, Now He doesn't seem to take women into account at all when he's asking this rhetorical question. Now I ask, who is injured by a man taking a second wife? When the wife he now has is agreeable and it is mutually understood between her and him. And the newly affianced, i.e. second wife it being entered into with a mutual understanding and a mutual agreement according to the law of God. I ask, who is injured? Wherein consists the crime of bigamy? And I don't
0: have the finishing sentence there. I must have accidentally copied too much. But it is crystal clear from the quote from Brother Richards that the new and everlasting covenant includes eternal marriage and plurality of marriage. And he goes at least twice here, mentions it as the new and everlasting covenant. And he is talking about plural wives. You can't argue it. There's not any other way around it because he's right. talking about the bigamy and who's heard if somebody marries a second wife, but it gets even worse. And we've covered this before. You'd want to go back and uh, and watch that episode. I thought it was a beautiful episode on this uh, event in church history, but Jesus himself, according to John Taylor, came and visited him in 1886 and gave him a revelation. This is in the moment where the church is scared to death; it's about to be uh, gone after by the U.S. government, and that it's going to lose all of its property. And John Taylor is worried like hell about continuing polygamy. And he asked, you know, again, supposedly in prayer, he asked Heavenly Father and the Savior, "What is he to do?" And John Taylor reports in his own words, his own writing that Jesus Christ himself shows up and says, my son, John, you have asked me concerning the new and everlasting covenant, how far it is binding upon my people. Now you can't make this mean just internal marriage because the church could discard polygamy easy. Hang on to eternal marriage and the U S government. Wouldn't give two licks about that. There's no Mm. reason to fret. If the new and everlasting covenant only means eternal marriage. So what does the Lord say? Thus saith the Lord, All commandments that I give must be obeyed by those calling themselves by my name, unless they are revoked by me or by my authority. And how can, and Jesus even basically says here, even he can't revoke it. How can I revoke an everlasting covenant? For I, the Lord, am everlasting, and my everlasting covenants cannot be abrogated nor done away with, but they stand forever. And then at the end, what does he say? He says, I have not revoked this law, nor will I, for it is everlasting, and those who will enter into my glory must obey the conditions thereof. Even so, amen. Jesus Christ himself in 1886, and only four years later, with the 1890 manifesto by Wilford Woodruff, the church begins to go down a new path where they separate the new and everlasting covenant, meaning plural marriage. They begin to only assign it to meaning eternal marriage or the gospel in general. And they they lie about knowing this revelation's in existence. And they do not canonize this revelation. It gets stored away. Uh, a few of the 12 know it exists. A few members of the first presidency know it exists. But they essentially disavow it. Addendum to the Doctrine and Covenants. It's canonized
1: it's, in this, baby. W- who printed that? Well... I'm expecting in some group, it's called Christ Church 2022, Mm. and uh, I'm guessing it's some uh, group that thinks that... Probably does polygamy. Polygamy is still a thing, yeah.
0: Jesus himself said that polygamy is part of the New and Everlasting Covenant, and he can never do away with it. And so once again, you have the church, as you pointed out, making the bullseye much bigger. It includes a lot of things, but now it does not include plural marriage. That can be done away with. And, uh, the church has made it by disavowing this 1886 revelation by lying about it. The church creates a space where the dominant narrative in front of its members make it so that those members cannot figure out what actually happened. Hence making this issue indiscernible from a fraud. All right. Temple ordinances can't be altered. I, you had uh, the book, "The Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith."
1: Yes, don't we all? Didn't we all? <laughs> we should. I so I read I've it several it times.
0: It's an orange cover.
1: <clears throat> Mine was oh. blue, but that was Yours kind was of blue. a newer one.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I have. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The old kind of cardboard binding uh, on those. Yep. Um, yeah. Joseph Smith says ordinances instituted in the heavens before the foundation of the world in the priesthood for the salvation of men are not to be altered or changed. All must be saved on the same principles. And you and I grew up again with that. Like the church had made lots of changes, but at the same time, we kind of got this double message that these ordinances cannot be altered. This was when the endowment was given to Joseph Smith in Nauvoo, that was heavenly father from his lips to Joseph Smith's ears Telling Joseph, what is this super special ritual that will get you and the rest of the saints to the celestial kingdom? And this is what it is, and this is the way to do it. And it needed to be so exact that when Joseph dies, Brigham Young and the Quorum of the Twelve work their rear ends off to try to remember every component because it's so important to pass it along as it was given. And yet, The endowment, as originally given in Nauvoo, became offensive uh, to the general sensibilities of people when they would learn about what was going on in there. Uh, For instance, when you were washed and anointed, you were naked in a bathtub. Um, It became uh, contrary to our sensibilities about uh, appropriateness within intimacy and sexuality, like you shouldn't be touched by another human when you don't know what's about to happen. The, the words came across as uh, the de- you know the, the, the death oaths that we would do uh, in the temple became also uh, offensive, right? And so what happens is the church does what it's not allowed to do. It alters the temple ordinances and every decade or so, it goes back in and it takes a little more out that's offensive, that kind of uh, is abrasive to our sensibilities. And and then we just call it, and we'll get to this later, but we call it an ongoing restoration, which gives us permission to change anything and everything, when in reality Joseph Smith was adamant that this was something that couldn't be changed. And hence, by them moving the goalpost and changing it to uh, be kosher with the general public, but also having carefully worded these things in ways as the average member not really recognizing anymore that this wasn't allowed to happen based on Joseph Smith's quote, again, making this issue
1: indiscernible from a fraud. Any thoughts on temple ordinances not being changed? On this particular issue that brings to mind the old expression, which has new meaning now in LDS circles, which is when your church changes, this is of course said from the point of view of a faithful LDS person, when your church changes, it's apostasy. When my church changes, it's continuing revelation. I don't know where it's the exact same here thing being described, but one of them is going to be given a term that is negative, and the other is going to be given a term that is positive. This is another thing that happens. I, I won't go into too much detail here because I'm trying to focus on this specific versus enlarging the definition, but that's another thing that happens is where you switch a definition on something and you, you're describing the exact same thing, but when You know, when your church does it, when the LDS church does it, it's the ongoing restoration in spite of what Joseph Smith said. And if another church changes, well, that's apostasy. See, it's a bad thing when other churches change. When our church changes, it's a good thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then I wanted to just show one other little clip here. Um, Masonry having such a connection to the endowment. This hits right on with what you just said. So you and I were taught that the endowment, all of it, the the clothes we wore, the oaths we made, the priesthood power being used there, all of it was this thing that God delivered by revelation to Joseph Smith hmm. to be able to perform this ritual. And we were taught that it was, uh, that the endowment, the reason it had a connection to masonry was because, and early le- church leaders say the same thing, uh, Hebrew C. Kimball and Wilford Woodruff being two of them, but mentioned that the Uh, endowment was a restored version of a corrupted endowment that the Masons were using. Mm -hmm. And then we were given that apologetic answer. It goes back to the temple of Solomon. But when, but when this became no longer tenable, the church did what you just said, which is they changed the definition. It's apologist came along and said, Oh no, 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 no. You just have to, you have to separate the endowment from the presentation of the endowment.
1: Right.
0: And Again, that's just not the way it was in the beginning. It's only when it no longer was tenable that a new definition is created to make room for the thing that no longer can be held to still work.
1: Right. And this, of course, the same issue went through a number of phases. First off, everybody who is in Nauvoo, who's a man, is basically a mason, and they're also Mormons who go to the temple. They know the similarities. They talk about them. One of them, I don't know if it was he or C. Kimball, I think it was talked about the temple endowment as being celestial masonry, that we have the pure thing. They have a corrupted version. Well, time goes on and that gets lost and forgotten. And I came about in an age when I am hearing from people who are reputed to know what they're talking about, who are members of the church. There is no connection between the temple and masonry. I'm just mentioning that because that was an earlier manifestation of this argument. It's complete denial. There is no connection between the temple and masonry. And that was effective as long as there were no masons who were also Mormons because you kind of have to be both to know, or at least to be able to read the literature, the exposés about either masonry or Mormonism. And you do the math and you already had some images of that up there on the uh, screen but now that this information is getting out once again once the information is getting out and it is indisputable that there are obvious connections and multiple connections between masonry and mormonism insofar as what goes on in the lds temple then they have to go to what you were talking about bill right well that's not important this is just it's like the the conveying vehicle the um the thing that's carrying forth this this endowment this this power And Joseph Smith used masonry in order to do it. Yeah, this is almost like God used Joseph Smith's treasure digging in order to prepare him to become a prophet. It strikes me as a similar argument to that.
0: Yeah. And once again, like you said,
1: it's indiscernible from a fraud. It is indiscernible. Now, the point at which the church has come to, excuse me, I'm sorry for interrupting. Please, you're good. But to say that Joseph Smith who was made into a Mason, uh, a third degree Mason, I think, on the spot. In like 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah. In Nauvoo, which is remarkable. I mean, this is like, I've never been a Mason. Okay. I've been a scout before. I've never been an Eagle Scout, but my understanding is this would be like becoming an Eagle Scout on the spot. You just joined the the Boy Scout troop. You're an Eagle Scout. Okay. 24 hours. How does that happen? Well, certain rules have to be bent, obviously. So uh, you've got the situation where Uh, Joseph Smith becomes a Mason. There is a Masonic temple in Nauvoo, which they don't even call the Masonic temple anymore. Remember, it's the cultural hall is what the church calls it in Nauvoo. But it was the Masonic hall. And you've also got the temple under construction. And they, they are so similar to what's going on that it looks like for all the world, Joseph Smith is using his experience in Masonry in order to put together his presentation of the endowment for the temple. That's what it looks like. It looks like there's a lot of borrowing going on and that this is what's really inspiring him is this masonry. And whether you look at it as Joseph Smith, just putting things together and cobbling them together for masonry and from some scriptures that he's come up with to come up with his drama that he's going to call his endowment when, and of course in the Masonic temple, you have a drama as well. It's not the exact same drama, but it's a drama with characters. And there's a presentation. How is that any different than simple fraud? Right. You get to the point where it looks like a fraud, but we're going to overlay it with a very complicated faith-based rationale to explain it as something different than a fraud. But the facts of them, they're immaterial. I mean, the facts are indistinguishable. From being a fraud. Yeah.
0: And just to note, sort of a side tangent, but just to note that at a moment when Joseph Smith is beginning to get fast and furious with implementing polygamy and needing secrecy, he uses the rituals of a system that he sees the successfulness of its ability to keep secrets. Right. Yeah. And I just want to note, Maven pointed this out. And this was actually one she was going to talk about. She's got some audio issues tonight. uh, So I'm going to put this back up on the screen. Yeah. But I want to note, Joseph Smith was adamant that the reason ordinances can't be altered is because all must be saved on the same principles. But I'll give one example. And this was one she noted. If in the past, a woman promised obedience to her husband and her husband promised obedience to God. And today, when you go to the temple, the man and the woman, promises obedience to God, then we ought to recognize that Joseph Smith, to a degree, is right here, in that if God is going to be consistent, people need to be saved under the same covenants, the same promises. It's why the ordinances can't be altered. And if one generation promised obedience to their husband, and another generation promised obedience to God, then our are all being saved on the same principles. And it seems like maybe not.
1: Right. And like Maven has mentioned here in the comment, uh, when she went through the temple for her endowment, because she went on a mission, she's single. When she went on, uh, her mission, she goes to the temple and she goes through her endowment from the woman's point of view, covenanting, covenanting. Let me think here. She covenanting to a non-existent husband. They don't change the language if you're single or if you're married for the women. Mm. Uh, I don't know if they do for the men, but I'm not sure it makes that big a difference. No, for the men, it doesn't make a difference because we're just covenanting to God. It doesn't make any difference if we're married to somebody or mm. if we're single. But for the woman, for Maven, she goes through a number of years ago and she covenants to obey a non-existent husband. And now today she covenants if she goes to the temple directly with God. And this whole thing about Joseph Smith, I mean, this is one of the things that really was attractive to me and to many people, I think about Mormonism is that there's this egalitarianism. There's it has this democratic impulse and that it's based in fairness. And this is something that I think that led to baptism for the dead, et cetera. But the idea being that in order to be saved, we all have to follow the same ordinances. We all have to follow the same rules, the same playbook. You don't get a benefit just because you're born at one time or uh, or another, or you happen to be in a certain place in the world versus a different place in the world. Everybody all the way back to Adam has to be saved on the same principles. You start monkeying with that when you change the ordinances and the principles, because then it starts to create the problem that Joseph Smith was trying to correct.
0: Yeah. Okay, let me put this back up. So the, the next one I want to mention was the racist priesthood and temple ban. One Mormonism was absolute that people of color were cursed with a dark skin. They were less valiant in the premortal earth life. And Brigham Young, as we talked about either last week or the week before, maybe two weeks ago, Brigham Young prophesied on four occasions that that curse would not be removed until after the, uh, the millennium. Um, But Mormonism then obfuscated the issue, pretending to admit the ban was wrong, but then through carefully worded statements, such as Elder Oaks uh, that we played a couple weeks ago, that they're actually holding on to the ban still, and that they're pretending that the theories never were doctrine, but were just theories. That the Brethren had just spoken their opinions, and they didn't really have any spiritual insight and and regardless of whether they knew by the holy ghost those things were true whether they imposed on others that get in line that these things are true or else you're going to be in trouble or that the membership of the church knew by the holy ghost that those theories were true because there is no question about this leading up to the 2013 gospel topic essay there's no one in the church who's formally saying uh in church uh avenues that that this ban these theories behind this ban aren't true um so they've misrepresented brigham young's four prophecies on the curse and they've made it so that this issue is so muddied that unless somebody really wants to spend a lot of time diving into it they've made it like this simple hey 1978 came we got a revelation the theories aren't, we've disavowed those. It's so unfortunate that our past leaders were were full of racism. Uh, as Elder Oaks says, the, the ban itself is still from God, and we make it so that members don't have a safe space to explore the question about how fallible can prophets be, and at what point is the fallibility so serious that maybe you're better off not following these men who claim to be prophets.
1: Right, the church has managed to twist itself into the position now of teaching in authoritative sources such as the essay on the church website that Brigham Young is wrong or was wrong about the curse of Cain being the cause that blacks could not hold the priesthood or go to the temple. So he's wrong about the curse of Cain, but Brigham Young is right about the priesthood and temple ban on which it is predicated, on which the curse of Cain is predicated. So in other words, he gives the reason for the ban as the curse of Cain. The church today says he's wrong about the curse of Cain, but he's right about the ban.
0: Right. That doesn't make much sense, does it?
1: That's a hard sell to make.
0: Yeah. The next one's one that uh, you're familiar with.
1: This is the Adam-God doctrine. Which one of those is Adam? I always get confused at this point.
0: Well, I've got to assume that Jesus is the one on uh, the left of the screen because I picture Jesus as a little more feminine and a little more uh, softer facial features than Adam, who had to uh, work by the sweat of his brow among the thorns to, to produce crops and as he named all the animals.
1: That guy sitting there on the left, he reminds me a little bit of Doug Henning.
0: Yeah, I don't know who Doug Henning is. So. <laughs>
1: Doug Henning. <laughs> well, those of you who do know, you'll know. He was he was a somewhat famous magician back in the day. Not back in Houdini's day, back, you know, 40 years ago or so. Um, anyway, so he kind of looked like that. So am I supposed to talk about the carefully worded denials and obfuscation of the Adam God teachings? Yeah, tell us what we were told. What was
0: what was the foundational truth claims that were given to us? Yeah. What happened that those didn't want to be held by the church anymore. And then what did they do to not have to hold those anymore?
1: Well, basically this starts where all good things start is that uh, that Brigham Young taught something that the church later wanted to repudiate. Okay. And that's the Adam God. He's
0: a false prophet, by the way, on numerous occasions, self-admitted by the church, Adam God. Um, Oh, the, the Brigham Young prophecy, uh, blood atonement, When you say Brigham Young prophecy, you
1: mean about blacks hitting the priesthood? About blacks
0: hitting the priesthood after the millennium. In other words, the church self-admits that Brigham Young claimed to be speaking for God, but was
1: wrong on multiple occasions. And I will tell you, I will say that the church does not self-admit that he was wrong. Instead, they actively, intentionally, and knowingly distort and edit his own words in order to make him not a false prophet. You can't edit words like that out of a prophecy without doing it knowingly and intentionally so the church knows he made a false prophecy which is sort of the definition of being a false prophet but they are willing to change his words in order to try and fool the members of the church into believing that he actually did prophesy that the priesthood would be restored before to the blacks before uh the millennium in 1978 specifically yeah Oh, yeah. So can I just say this one thing here before I get to the Adam Please. God theory? I just want to mention this. This may be the most important thing I say tonight. Um, because I've already talked about this idea about uh, the variation on the um, Texas sharpshooter fallacy and giving a specific claim and then making it more general and more general as you need to. I did want to mention this, though, is that because this is something that's very commonly done Uh, in the church and outside the church, that this is the rule that I derived from that, is that one way to prove the church false, because that's kind of what the subject of tonight's show is, isn't it?
0: It is how you could know whether the church is true or whether it's a fraud, although I'm going to be a little funny at the end when I answer that question, but go ahead.
1: Okay, okay. Um, But one way to prove the church or anything false false, is if you do not allow the refutation of a specific claim to be redefined as a more general claim that remains unrefuted. So if you're aware of this technique, and after tonight's show, you should be able to spot it, like, you know, whatever down the highway, raccoons, uh, mailboxes down the highway, you should be able to see them readily so adam god theory the first thing we do uh is we say after after brigham young taught it okay over and over again from 1852 to 1877 i think we all know the story by now and this is not about to get into it okay and he taught this theory which is completely different than what the lds church teaches today the first thing the lds church does is it never talks about it okay I don't know that we teach that. I don't know that we emphasize that. See, when Gordon B. Hinckley said that, he actually revealed one of the main strategies that the church has of retiring controversial doctrines is you quit talking about it. And so they did that for a long time. Unfortunately, got these damn polygamous sects that still believe it. And so they're writing their books and they're talking to, you know, the active faithful and trying to woo them over to their polygamous side. And The church is stuck with it. So then when it comes to the attention of the members of the church that apparently Brigham Young taught some unusual things regarding God and Adam, the next step is just to deny it. No, Brigham Young never taught that. And Spencer Kimball said as much in General Conference in 1976. So you say he never taught it. Once again, we see the pattern, right? Then when it looks like he really did teach it. And by the way, all these determinations are made not by the church but by the person who's finding out more and more information so the church is trying to hide this information as a person finds out more and more then the church's response changes and starts making that bullseye bigger and bigger a person finds out well brigham young did teach it it's in you know journal of discourses volume one pages 50 through 51 it's the reference that all adam god theorists know Um, And that's where it says, um, Adam is our father and our God and the only God with whom we have to do, et cetera, et cetera. Then they give a lame apologist, apologetic on that. And uh, they say, uh, because Brigham Young said that uh, God is the same character who was in the Garden of Eden. They take that one statement out of context and they say, well, who was in the Garden of Eden? It was Adam and Eve. And what happened in the cool of the evening? Well, God came walking along, right? because he liked to enjoy the cool of the evening in the garden. So God was in the garden of Eden and that's surely what Brigham Young meant. Don't call me surely. So they get this weak apologetic, like that's the only time he ever mentioned it. And I've read that too. But then the person goes on, they keep studying, dang it. Um, they're not a lazy learner. They keep studying to find out actually Brigham Young said this many, many times other than that and in ways that are not subject to that same apologetic, it's clear what he meant. And what he meant was something very different than what the church teaches today. Okay, well, then the next thing is, um, his scribes wrote it down wrong, okay? The recorder wrote it down wrong. So it just looked that way. And then you find out that actually Joseph, uh, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young reviewed all of his talks like anybody would for crying out loud, who's in any position of authority, even I would want to do that, and I'm in no position of authority, before something I say gets published. Yeah, I'd like to look at it first and make sure that you got it down right. Or maybe if there's any changes I need to make in it, if I got something wrong. Brigham Young even talked about that process. So then that evaporates, that apologetic evaporates. And then he was misunderstood. And then there's all this stuff that goes on. And there's it's a retreating position or making the bullseye bigger and bigger and bigger. Until finally now, people say, well, yeah, he did teach that, but he also taught other things that contradict it. That's false as well. That isn't the end state either. The end state is Brigham Young taught things about God and Adam that the church does not teach today. That's the final result. And that's where you're not supposed to be able to go. But once you get to that point, then you start looking at it and saying, well, if I can't trust Brigham Young because the current prophet says he was wrong what if the situation were reversed? Can I trust Russell M. Nelson or in 76 Spencer Kimball if Brigham Young would have said that they were wrong? You got a case of dueling prophets. Which prophet am I to follow? And of course, it's in the context of all this stuff that the teaching comes forward from Ezra Taft Benson that living prophets trump dead prophets. So that's how we resolve it. It makes no rational sense whatsoever. No rational sense. but that's what we're going to go with in order to maintain the status quo over and above what past dead prophets taught even Brigham Young, even when he claimed it was by revelation, even when he claimed that your eternal salvation depended upon your believing that doctrine.
0: And when and when you say that uh, maybe Brigham was right and maybe it's Kimball or Nelson who's wrong, Brigham would have agreed with that because, so let me say this first. One of the apologetic responses I was given, and you named it, was that Brigham only said it one time and it's a little bit in this confusing context. It seems like maybe if we make some allowances, he's talking about him coming into the garden and not talking about Adam specifically, but Heavenly Father. But that's not real. As you pointed out, the more you dig, this is Mormon Think's repository on Adam God teaching. So you have... You know, LDS scriptures, you've got LDS hymns, sons of Michael, he approaches. But then you've got, you know, the prophet Joseph Smith, at least once, you've got Brigham Young over and Can you over again. you go back again. to Joseph Smith. Thank you. So right now, RFM's reading the.
1: Yes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, those I'm familiar with. The thing is that that Joseph Smith never taught the Adam-God theory, but what he did teach was that Adam was a very highly exalted being. Yeah. And he stands at the head of the human race. And if we can trust the way the temple endowment is now as the way it was that Joseph Smith presented it, he becomes, in effect, one of the Godhead of Elohim Jehovah and Michael who create this earth.
0: Right. And then we've got Brigham Young over and over again and Brigham yeah. condemned those who would not get on board with this teaching and he says he knew by the spirit that it was true and that many of the saints knew by the spirit it was true. Mm-hmm. And it's over and over again. And then Heber C. Kimball testifies of it. And then you've got Orson Pratt uh saying some things. You got Wilford Woodruff. You've got Uh, Abraham H. Cannon. And by the way, I put this link in the comments section. I'll I'll include it in the show notes. You can go read all of these. Eliza R. Snow and then other primary sources. This was said over and over and over and over again. Um, And so Adam God is another one of these things that the church got really uncomfortable with. It comes up with a whole new narrative uh, and it finds workarounds in misrepresenting what Brigham Young said, how many times he said it. And in fact, we even have Bruce R. McConkie on the record Mm -hmm. disavowing that Brigham Young taught it, only to a few years later acknowledge to Eugene England that he knows his stuff and he does know that Brigham Young did teach it. So you have church leaders picking which audience knows and doesn't know what they're going to say, and they couch their answers based on whether they'll get pushback from a informed intellectual or whether they're talking to just the run of the mill members of a, of a ward or a stake. Um, right. And when there's you always find out what's going games.
1: on, oh, I'm sorry, when you find out what's like, going on be, behind the scenes, like that letter to Eugene England and you're just floored and you realize that when leaders, I'm not going to say every time, but with enough frequency to be concerning when they're speaking in general conference or giving speeches at BYU or whatever it may be, it's kabuki theater. They are not actually representing the truth as they know it to be. Instead, they are trying to put the church as an organization in the best light possible. And if that means we have to cover up, if we have to obfuscate, if we have to change history, if we have to even gaslight, we're going to do that because making the church look good is the prime directive.
2: I think we'd also have to be honest. There may be some of these questions that there is no answer to.
1: Yes. Those, I think, would be the ones we avoid. Okay. The isn't next one funny, is the. Isn't it funny that? when you compare that with Mor- uh, Moroni chapter 10, verse 5, that says that by the power of the Holy Ghost, you may know the truth of all things?
0: Yeah. You should be able to answer any question if you're a prophet, seer, and
1: revelator. That's what Moroni chapter 10. That's what the Book of Mormon says. You can yeah. know the truth of all things. And if we take that, one passage, chapter 10, verse 5, Moroni, literally, which I think we're supposed to do is believing Mormons, right? Then what Elder Ballard is saying, apparently is tantamount to saying that he doesn't have he doesn't have access to the power of the Holy Ghost. Not only does he not see Jesus, he can't even have access to the power of the Holy Ghost to know the truth of these questions that he says are so hard that we'll just avoid them altogether.
0: Yeah, and what seems sort of funny to me is the questions they choose to avoid are the ones that when you're honest, it doesn't look good for the church.
1: Yeah, it's just a coincidence,
0: I'm sure. <laughs> All right. So first vision, by the way, that Moroni scripture depends on whether it's a tight translation or not. If it's a loose translation, then who knows whether that's what Moroni said, and if that's the real rules of the church. Ah, good point. Okay. First vision, Joseph Smith gave four firsthand accounts of his first vision, They disagree on his motivations, what he experienced, who he was visited by, etc., etc. Yet leaders, in order to deal with that, hid accounts away, dismissed differences, minimized contradictions, so as to make this issue indiscernible from a fraud. We were all taught, you, me, and everyone from my generation and before, for sure, you and I were taught only that 1838 account. And it was as if that was the only record that existed on the planet about what Joseph Smith experienced. And we just took it for granted that it just didn't get told or written down very many times. And that was the only place you really had to go for a concrete record of what Joseph Smith experienced. Little did we know, there were two other accounts, the 1835 and the 1832, that had pieces of the narrative that, didn't mesh with the official account that we were given because church leaders were so uncomfortable with it that Joseph Fielding Smith cut it out with a pen knife and stuck it in the vault and only told the people he thought he could trust about these,
1: about what he called as a peculiar first vision account. And I would even amend that to say he didn't show it to anybody that we know of, even people, whether he trusted or not, unless they went over his head to the first presidency and got approval from them, because he says, I'm not showing it to you unless the president of the church tells me I got it, and then put them under solemn oath that they won't tell anybody else about it. And like these other issues, one of the accounts says
0: that Joseph Smith uh, knew all the churches were false when he went into the grove, and another account says he didn't know that any of the churches were false when he went into the grove. Mm Mm-hmm. And people like Stephen Harper come along and they create the mental gymnastics of going, well, they could both be true. He could be thinking one thing in his mind and another in his heart. Mm -hmm. And that's the apologetic response that Stephen Harper gives, which is, as you point out, just make a bigger circle. Just make a bigger bullseye. Mm -hmm. Let more things fit into it. And if you need to dismiss the one thing that doesn't fit.
1: And what they've done in the Saints book, as well as in this neat little five-minute movie that they have playing at the Church History Museum, which I was able to see when I was down there in this past July for, I almost said Thrive, but this would be Sunstone, right? Have you ever seen that? It's like a five-minute movie about the first vision. And what they do there is they do exactly what they did with the the Saints manual. Is now they take all four of these and some others that are secondary accounts, and they make one narrative out of all of them. Yeah. Now, of course, when they do that, what they're doing is they're they're telling the traditional story, taking pieces from each narrative with the idea or the implication that they are now accounting for all the narratives when Mm -hmm. actually what they're doing is they are, of course, not taking the pieces out of the narratives that contradict each other. Those are left to the side. Another thing that's amazing to me is that I grew up with the um, 1838 account, the one that's canonized, right? 1842 account we knew a little bit about because that's the one that says uh, Wentworth letter uh, God and Jesus look exactly identical to each other. But the 1832 account, as you said, was cut out by the church historian stuck and hidden in his safe for decades until finally it was released because the public got to know about it because of the tanners they were they found out and they're making a little bit of hay over the fact that they've got this strange account hidden of the first vision. Finally, it it comes to light in 1965. But the thing that's even stranger about that is the 1835 account doesn't come out until a year later. I don't know if I said 18, I meant 1965, if I didn't say 1965. And this one comes out, the 1835 account comes out in 1966. That's how late these guys are to being publicized and how much the church worked on not making them available. It, it's sort of funny
0: that Oakes and Ballard picked that 1970 talk from the Enzyme when only four years later, the 1832 account is taped back into the journal, and it leads to the 1970 article being published. That article, of course, not a retrievable on LDS.org it's it Mm -hmm. they're playing games with all of you they're they're just lying to your face and pretend and then smiling while they do it Mm
1: -hmm. um to me it's just absolutely humorous the thing I find the most uh disturbing about that whole video which I've seen a number of times now and you've played the audio but when you watch the video there's all these young people it's a youth face it's a young adult face to face it's a youth devotional and here's these two gentlemen up there they're church leaders they're apostles of Jesus Christ
0: you use that term gentlemen loosely
1: Okay. Okay. <laughs> but they're up there. They're just lying to these people. Yeah. They are absolutely Flat lying out. to them. And then the, the camera will go to the people of the young faces, the boys and the girls who are present in the crowd. And they're just, oh, yes, these guys, we believe them. We trust them. They're telling us the truth. And I'm yeah. just looking at them going, well, I used to be you. So I guess I, I'm not judging you. It just seems to me. What it seems to me, honestly, as I feel a little bit of anger about this, is it seems to me very wrong that church leaders or any leaders of any kind will play upon the trust that they know their members have in them and use that in order to deceive them.
0: That feels like an intentional deception, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No bueno.
0: Yep. Next one I've got here is the hills, hills, the two hills, Camorra. So the hill Camorra and the hill Rama being the same hill in the book of Mormon. Um, there's a certain geography shared. Uh, we went over it last week, which was a great episode on the literacy of these people. Yeah. Um, there is the numbers of people in battle in some of these battles numbering in the millions. And yeah, in, the Jaredites. And all you have to do is take some time to understand what it takes to give supplies to an army, a military force that big. And Mm -hmm. it is it it is unheard of, especially outside of the modern age. Even in a modern age, this would be so difficult to do. And because that hill, because that area doesn't match the geography, because the people in that area don't have the right skill sets, such as literacy. And because of the fact that there is no way there were battles of millions of people on that hill, Camorra, the church and its apologists then simply do some really cool trick, which is just move the hill. And and with the book of Abraham as a catalyst, Jesus said, if
1: you have faith as a mustard seed, Bill, you'll you'll be able to say to this mountain, remove from hence.'"
0: Yeah. And there it went. Now it's in now it's in Peru. It was a big trip. (sighs) Just like with the catalyst theory, you only invent the catalyst theory because the theory you were told worked no longer works. Like you don't need a catalyst theory. You've said this before. You don't need a catalyst theory. If the papyri matches, you don't need a second hill Camorra. If things are the way they're supposed to be, you only need a second hill because nothing matches in Palmyra, New York.
1: Right. And even the heartlanders like uh, Rod Meldrum, he is aware of the fact, first off, he believes hill Camorra that's where the battle happened. That's where they all happened. Just like the Book of Mormon says, just like Joseph Smith said, but the site is a clean archeological site. There are no swords. There are no bucklers. There's nothing. There's no, no, no bones as far as the kind of bones you'd have from armies fighting and dying in this location. Mm. And when he was asked that, I think it was by John DeLynn back when he was on John DeLynn show a year or so ago, his response to that, By the way, before he gets to his response, most people would look at that and say, okay, well, if this is a clean archaeological site, then this battle as described in the Book of Mormon didn't happen here. Okay, we got to look somewhere else. At least the farms crowd makes sense there. We got to look somewhere else. But a rational person approaching this without motivated reasoning would say, okay, well, I guess the Book of Mormon is wrong about that. But we can't say that because we're committed to it as scripture. So we're motivated reasoners and we will come up with any explanation, no matter how ludicrous in order to preserve the book of Mormon as an ancient scripture. So what Rod Meldrum says is, well, of course, when the Lamanites killed off all the Nephites, they wanted all that armor. So they came in and took all the armor off the Nephites and it took it with them. Yeah, And I'm just thinking, as he was saying it and I was listening to the podcast, I'm going, where did they take it, Rod? Where did they take it? Did they take it and make it vanish because it's nowhere found anywhere in all of the Americas? Did they just do a magic trick? Just because you take it from here, and by the way, you're not going to take everything anyway, including the bones, just because you take it from here doesn't mean that it doesn't have to end up somewhere else. Does that make sense, Bill?
0: no say that a different way
1: okay well you take it from Kamora, and you take it over to ohio or nebraska or wherever you're going to take it right it's going to end up somewhere yeah. and it's going to be found yeah yeah it's not it hasn't been found it'll You've never be found hundreds uh, tens of thousands and even millions when you get to the jaredites of armor of arrows of swords you can't just take them all and say, well, that accounts for why it's not there. You have to account for why it's not anywhere. But this yeah. is the kind of um, reasoning that motivated believers will come to. And people on the outside, look at that and say, you gotta be kidding me. What are you smoking, man? But when you're on the inside and the only thing that matters is preserving the book of Mormon as scripture and your belief system as true and valid, then it doesn't look weird at all. No
0: and so creating a second hill camora in a different location was a way that the church and its apologist made this issue indiscernible from a fraud all right um a few more here so joseph smith's unhealthy predatory behavior around polygamy again young girls manipulating them with with standard grooming techniques that we now understand that predators use giving people short time frames to make decisions Putting lots of spiritual pressure on them, telling them things will happen to their their the eternal nature of their soul if they don't get in line. Sending the, the father away on a mission, uh, asking these girls to move into the home so that they can be closer to Joseph, so that he can uh, put undue pressure on them simply by uh, uh, the the location of them being close in space to him. And what the church did here was it just got rid of it. I mean, until the Gospel Topic essay came out on polygamy, and you'll see that here in this next slide. So first I want to note, it's not just a Joseph Smith problem. The leaders that came after Joseph Smith not only approved of his predatory behavior, they perpetuated it. And uh, Brigham Young marries a 16-year-old. John Taylor, 78, he marries a 26-year-old. Wilford Woodruff, 46, he marries a 15-year-old. Uh, Lorenzo Snow's 57. He marries a 15 year old. Um, Joseph F. Smith was 28. He marries a 17 year old. These men all did this thing. And the New York Times, uh, which is there on the right, uh, they noted when this happened, when that gospel topic essay came out, they noted that, again, what it says there in red at the bottom Mormon leaders have acknowledged for the first time, the only place you or I prior to this gospel topic essay could have seen in official channels that Joseph Smith was a polygamist would have been to go into the family history center and look his name up on family search. Outside of that, there was no part of the curriculum to the point where if you remember when the teachings of the president's manual came out, they even changed Brigham Young's polygamous relationships from plural to singular so that people reading the lesson manual would be presented with the idea that Brigham Young is a monogamous, he has one wife. The church completely made this issue vanish to the point where I say this all the time. We tell the story of Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner putting the Book of Commandments into her dress, sorry, putting the Book of Commandments into her dress, and we don't tell anyone that she also happens to be a wife of our founder, which seems like a much more important detail. And we don't say it. The way the church made this issue completely disappear until the gospel topic essay came out. And even now you read that essay, the Kirtland Nauvoo one, several months shy of her 15th birthday, Joseph may have lied. Joseph may have done this. They do not want the average member to wrestle with just how unhealthy Joseph Smith was and those after him in the practice of polygamy
1: right and i once again i know that you studied mormonism a lot i studied mormonism a lot i continue to study mormonism a lot it's a great fascination of mine and it really was my first academic love of my life it really opened up those channels of scholasticism and wanting to read and wanting to learn and i'd never really experienced that before in an academic setting so very much involved but certainly i knew that joseph smith had practiced polygamy even though it wasn't mentioned in the church and even though it's not mentioned in church manuals that I'm reading, but from other sources, you know, those non church approved sources that you are told in general conference, you're not supposed to be reading. Yeah. That's where I learned I learned about this kind of stuff, but I was also confronted with the fact that there were a lot of people who maybe didn't study as much as I did and they got what they knew about the church from church and from church publications who were shocked to find out that Joseph Smith did practice polygamy. They sort of thought it started with brigham young but they were really fuzzy about it and so i had called my daughter at this time an adult this is a number of years ago and i just wanted to get her take on it because i knew she'd been raised in the church uh, up through at least 18 and subsequently you know become disaffected or disaffiliated from the church but i asked her i said um were you ever ever taught in church that joseph smith practiced polygamy And her response was one of astonishment. She said, he did? Yeah. So if you're the regular Mormon, growing up in regular Mormonville, yeah, you don't know this stuff because the church doesn't teach it, doesn't emphasize it.
0: Yeah. And you even get where when you would ask questions, it was this idea that there were more women than men who joined the church. There were so many widows on the trail going west to Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. You get all these deflections that that you never really get the chance as a believing active Mormon prior to uh, the internet age of the church. You, you, you get no real space to wrestle with Joseph marrying young girls—that's not really something you're thinking through. You, you don't even know it. You, your assumption is if Joseph's a polygamist, you don't have any idea that it's kids,
1: right? You don't it's know anything about polyandry. We're not married, right?
0: Yeah, you don't know anything about polyandry. Yeah, you don't know this stuff, and they didn't want you to know it because it's not conducive to belief in the church. It's it's problematic against their truth claims, so they made it disappear so that it was indiscernible from a fraud. Then you've got Lamanite DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, Native Americans have been, had their genetic sequence, uh, genetic uh, sequences studied, all the genetic code, the, all that stuff. And what you end up with is that, uh, almost entirely Native Americans have, uh, Asiatic or Asian, uh, uh DNA to them, believed to have come across on the, uh, the land bridge mm-hmm. and made their way into this country.
1: About 10,000 years ago.
0: Yeah, when you and can there is, and there is this tiniest speck of a few of the Native American tribes who do have uh, a European marker in their DNA, but the geneticist can pinpoint when that entered the genetic code of their of their uh, you know their their genetic sequence essentially in that uh, Native American tribe, and it's not the right time. It's not the right. It's not the right moment.
1: Well, it's usually post Columbus, isn't it?
0: Yeah. And so it's not the right moment. And so what the church has now done is they themselves, again, remember, uh, it's we like to have this idea in the modern moment that the Nephites and Lamanites landed. We talked about this uh, last week. The Nephites and uh, Lamanites, the family of Lehi, a land on the new world, and it's completely empty. Right? Um, Second Nephi chapter one, verses six, eight, and nine, that there shall none come into this land, save they shall be brought by the hand of the Lord. And behold, it is wisdom that this land should be kept as yet from the knowledge of other nations. And they shall shall be kept from other nations that they may possess this land unto themselves. When I read the Book of Mormon, when -hmm. you read the Book of Mormon, we read it as if they showed up in an empty world.
1: Well, yeah, and we also recognize, yeah, there's some Jaredites that came here, and they had a big battle, and there's a few of them, you know, hanging around and wandering about. One of which will, I think, be discovered by some <laughs> early Nephites. But, but yeah, this is an empty land because the whole mise en scene of the Book of Mormon is that there's nobody who gets here unless they come from another nation or another country, and maybe that maybe that part was true. I'm not sure, but regardless. They only get here if God leads them here because it's inaccessible otherwise unless you're led by God. This is the, okay. We both know, are you going to where the apologists are going or are you just going to leave it at here?
0: I'm going to mention what the church says here on the left-hand side, but otherwise uh, I've got another slide that's some other facet of this, but not anything else. So please.
1: It's an empty land. It's a land of promise. And that's why only those whom the Lord brings can possess it and they possess it unto themselves. There are not, it is not inhabited at the time the Nephites arise, arrive, according to the Book of Mormon. And when of course, science progresses and evolves and we start finding out more about the early inhabitants and the native Americans that were here at the time that the Book of Mormon says that the Nephites arrived. We find it was not empty, it was inhabited, and in fact there were civilizations that existed, some more advanced than others. So now what the church does is it changes the narrative, even though it conflicts with a straightforward reading of what the Book of Mormon says.
0: Yeah. And you and I don't ever figure this out. We talked about it last week, which was again, great episode because we're pointing to several parts of it that are here in this, this one as well, but it makes to me in 2023, it makes zero sense that a family of 10 or 20 show up in the new world and they get to dictate the religious system of the already existing numerous people here. Mm -hmm. They get to dictate uh, the, the, Uh, literacy, they get to dictate the religious practices, they get to dictate uh, everything about that culture. Because you and I know now, using a critical thinking mind, that if 10 or 20 people show up, you either get in line or you can get out. Everybody here is going to dictate what those 10 or 20 people do.
1: Right. And they'll probably be seized as prisoners and maybe sacrificed or something like that, if that's the way it happened. But Right. You've got the LDS Gospel Topic Essay. This is from Miston Sunday School. They have those quotes from the Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi Chapter 1, verses 6, 8, and 9 that we've already read. But in the LDS Gospel Topic Essay, we have to contradict the Book of Mormon. And so in the Gospel Doctrine, excuse me, the LDS Gospel Topic Essay about the Book of Mormon and DNA studies, they have this flat statement. The Book of Mormon itself, however, does not claim that the peoples it describes were either the predominant or the exclusive inhabitants of the lands they occupied. Yeah. The problem A is the of Mormon says they were. Yeah.
0: Um, the gospel topic essay itself says, the majority of Native Americans carry largely Asian DNA. We should have found their DNA to have Israelite connections, and we don't. And so what we do is we change the... Uh, the, we change the canon of our church from, and they are the principal ancestors of the American Indians too, and they are among the ancestors of the American Indians. Notice that bullseye. You can literally see that bullseye get bigger right there.
1: Yep. They are the principal ancestors of the American Indians, which was the introduction of the Book of Mormon based upon what the Book of Mormon itself says, along with statements by Joseph Smith. Then when the DNA, the science did not support that and became painfully irrefutable that it did not. Then they change it. They are among the ancestors of the American Indians. Yeah. By the way, on that prior slide, I couldn't help but hear the voice of Kermit the Frog singing, someday we'll find it. The Israelite connection. Can you do that as Kermit? Uh the, the Moroni scripture here? No, that one from the last one you said. Actually it's just you talking. You know, someday they'll find it. The Israelite connection. That's what they're trying to find in the DNA. Yeah. But it is not to be found. There by the is way, no Moroni, connection.
0: Moroni locks us into this. He, the angel, this is Joseph Smith. He, the angel Moroni told me of a sacred record, which was written on plates of gold. I saw and vision the place where they were deposited. He said the Indians were the literal descendants of Abraham. And today by the church's own standard, we don't know who a Lamanite is anymore. I, I wrote here, I put, today the churches moved the goalpost on all of that, creating a new framing where Lehi and his family arrive in an already largely populated land where they would always be a small minority whose genetic markers just genetically drifted to the point of vanishing altogether. We can't discern who's a Lamanite and who's just a regular Native American anymore, so how can we ever bring them to the gospel when the Book of Mormon's primary purpose was to be delivered to the Lamanites?
1: Right, and this is one of the examples where the the target has been enlarged to the point where it is the size of the side of the barn on which it is painted. And it actually becomes meaningless. It's meaningless. You have, you have enlarged your claim to such a point that it has no meaning. And that is a good example where the church doesn't even know where the Lamanites are anymore.
0: Yeah, it doesn't know who is and who isn't. It, you couldn't line up. 25 tan-skinned people and ask somebody in the church an official way to point out which one of those is a Lamanite and which one isn't. They couldn't do it.
1: Right, and they don't dare because they know that the odds are, like, well, really good that if you pinpoint a tribe or a person, they're not going to have any Israelite DNA in them.
0: Right, Um, and uh, yeah, so in this issue here, they've watered it down. As you said, they watered it down so much, it's indiscernible from a fraud. I thought this one was cool. I put a bunch of our neo-apologists up on the screen. I just want to read these words and just notice what they all point to. Bricolage, eclectic aggregator, pseudopigrapha, direct borrowing. Blake Osler's my favorite one, expansion theory. Uh, Terrell Givens, in the first interview with John DeLynn, said if we just – John, if we we just make some allowances, uh, loose translation (laughs) and catalyst theory, all of those words indicate that what the church claimed isn't what we find, and we have to rewrite the narrative.
1: It's an attempt to use language to make plagiarism respectable. Yeah. Did
0: you hear that, folks? This is how you use these kinds of words to make plagiarism respectable. Respectful. Um, All right. Respectable. I'm sorry. I'm messing it up. Chopping it up into pieces. Joseph Smith translation. We went over this maybe a month and a half ago or so. Joseph Smith's inspired Bible translation, once proclaimed to be a restoring of the Bible to its original meaning and form, has now shifted to a flawed and weak-ass Bible commentary.
1: Right. It's indistinguishable from a fraud. There's no way you can falsify the enlarged claim specific, it restores what was originally there. We found out as time progressed and as research and biblical studies progressed, that's not the case. It's not restoring anything that was already there before and that was not available to Joseph Smith. I wanted to add that that caveat there. So now it becomes a commentary, which means we can't it's prove it's real or not. It's, it's, it's indistinguishable, indiscernible from a fraud. And then it even gets worse, which is some scholars, and you know, some of them, we had a picture of one of them on the prior slide. They find out that actually Joseph Smith appears in many instances to have been borrowing his commentary from other well-known biblical commentators of his day. So now we actually can see where it appears he was getting his ideas. For his commentary. So now we have to even get more desperate and say, okay, well, obviously he didn't use all the ideas from these commentators or these commentaries that he had access to. Therefore, God must have been inspiring him to choose this one, this one, and this one, and not this one, this one, and this one, to put in his Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. And now that becomes in effect, the catalyst theory for the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, because now it definitely is indistinguishable from a fraud. To the point where rather than
0: even use the word plagiarism, Thomas Wayman uses the phrase direct borrowing.
1: Right. We don't want to use the P word. And I understand that there can be, you know, sometimes it gets misused. Yeah, I get that. But whatever you call it, Joseph Smith is taking ideas from one commentary, and presenting them as if they are his own inspired commentary of the Bible.
0: Even worse, he's presenting them as if they were God's original meaning in the Bible in the first place. Yes. Yeah. That's problematic.
1: Um, oh, Go ahead. No, I'm just going to agree with you. It's very problematic. And once again, it's all this stuff about getting bigger and bigger and bigger as far as your claims. These specific claims, I'm not sure. Maybe you can correct me, Bill. Maybe you found one in your research for tonight's show. I am not aware of any specific claim that the church has made at its inception or during Joseph Smith's life that hasn't had to be backed up and broadened as research has progressed and as science has progressed.
0: Let me, uh, we could point easily to Charlie Harrell's book, This is My Doctrine. He He would certainly stand up for that and say that seems to be true. Um, I'll also say it another way, which is that every single truth claim of the LDS church in 2023 has that claim uh, being problematic and the conclusion of the critic being more rational and stronger evidence-based than the church's perspective. On this one here,
1: oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that the church, what it does is it presents its position on every truth claim as if it is ironclad and it's always been that way. And it certainly doesn't present it as it really is from a larger perspective, which is it's the current point on a trajectory that has brought it to this point and will continue to evolve beyond it. To the point where now
0: today, again, segue, they've created the ongoing restoration, which now gives them room to completely reevaluate, reinterpret, uh, everything that has ever been done before. And so we covered, uh, several months ago, we talked about this book, ancient Christians, mm-hmm. where the apologist at the Maxwell Institute brought in the bullseye for what it means to restore the ancient church. We also have them walking back what it meant to have the great apostasy out. Brother Talmadge was wrong on so many things. And to the point where the church has changed so much, That rather than saying we're an apostasy, because it's the same definition, they use the phrase, as you pointed out earlier, ongoing restoration, which covers the same details as if it was an apostasy, but it's a faithful interpretation, hence it's indiscernible from a fraud.
1: Yeah, they're just changing stuff right and left, willy-nilly. Even though, and and the whole thing is that, as you know, and... I think it's important for the voices who were around 40 years ago and 45 years ago i was baptized to be able to tell you what it was really like back then and what it was really like back then and probably even in your day bill Mm -hmm. joseph smith was the prophet of the restoration everything that was essential to the salvation and exaltation of mankind was restored through him. In fact, his life was miraculously preserved on several instances in order to give him enough time to be able to restore everything that was necessary to this earth. And since that time, the job of the church has been to preserve that and make sure that it doesn't get monkeyed with or changed or diluted or apostatized from. But all that's changed, it's a different world now. Oh, brave new world that has such people in it as President Nelson. Because he will change anything he wants, and it doesn't make any difference what Joseph Smith said. Uh that's probably hyperbolic. I'm sure it makes a difference what Joseph Smith said. But up to this point, honestly, when Ezra Taft Benson said living prophets trump dead prophets. I think that there really was a caveat there. At least that was my experience and it didn't include Joseph Smith. You know what I mean, Bill? Mm -hmm. It didn't seem to, I mean, he was the founder. His words had extra weight and extra authority, but now he seems to have lost that extra weight and extra authority. And he is just sort of in the realm of Brigham Young as far as being able to be thrown under the bus or being modified.
0: Yeah, I've got just, two more here and then we'll take phone calls so I'm actually going to put up uh, on the screen the banner Uh, sorry folks sorry RFM for going a little long tonight Um, is that the banner of heaven you're putting up it's the banner of 662-667-6667 the call-in number for the call-in studio I need to uh, uh, click a button here just to turn the call-in studio on and click that uh, button yeah you should be able to get into it now folks I'm going to pull my phone here and um, all right. So uh, give me two seconds here. All right, we are in. So folks, you can call the number. You can join the live call in section of the show. Uh, last two here. I wanted to go into Michael Ash. I thought this one's funny. I like Michael. Um, I've never really felt harshly attacked by him, which is sort of a rarity among fair Mormon apologists. But and when's he coming on the show then? Uh, I would love, I you know what? We I'll invite him this week and we'll see if he'll come on and defend Some of these ideas, but one of his ideas, when presented with the large numbers of people in battle, uh, Michael Ash, a fair Mormon apologist, admits that in many instances the numbers of people described in the Book of Mormon, such as battles at the Hill Cumorah and Rama, seem to be absurd or at least highly embellished. He simply excuses it away as though we should, uh, such should simply be expected that these are. These, these people writing these narratives, it's natural for them to embellish the story from being 2,000 people to being 2 million people, right? and that once you expect that, it's no longer a problem.
1: And the way my brain boils that argument down is this. The Book of Mormon is not false because it's false. <laughs> right. Even
0: if the Book of Mormon isn't accurate, it doesn't present reality right, it's still true somehow. It still works. hmm yeah. Um, all right. Next one is just the fact with science. We I think we hit on this a little bit earlier with some of this, but global flood is now a local flood. The uh, age of the earth, uh, we used to believe that the that the that there were these dispensations of the gospel. Each one's a thousand years. We're in the sixth dispensation. So the earth is around 6,000 years old. When Christ comes back, there'll be another thousand on top of it. And what the, the folks now do is they go, no, no, no. Like we see it. The, the geological record does show that the uh, rock formations are billions of years old. Uh, We're going to agree with that. So we're going to now rewrite the narrative so that uh, a day in the life of God is a thousand years. And hence, when we say 6,000 years, it could literally be infinity and we wouldn't know because God's ways are not our ways. It's all a mystery. And then the tower of Babel. Yeah. And tower of Babel, which is, maybe the weirdest one of them all. The problem is that the old Testament uses this story and the book of Mormon uses this story, but it comes through two different groups of people. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to go like it either happened and maybe the church is true, or if it didn't happen, then the church couldn't possibly be true. And what you end up with is apologists saying that the Jaredite record, uh, has that story, but it's because the authors of the Jaredite record are also just taking the myths they were given and passing them along. But again, it comes through a completely different timeline and different people than the Bible story does. And you sort of, over that, great a time. It just, that doesn't really make sense, but that's how they walk it back.
1: That sounds like a Grant Hardy argument. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I'm, I think he's brilliant. And I think he's done the best work on the book of Mormon of anybody that I've ever read. But I think I encountered that argument there.
0: Yeah. And uh, I just want to note here, this is what the church does. This, has, this is kind of a side tangent issue, but it's the last thing. And then I want to show a couple of little funny slides, but this is the last serious one. Notice the use of contradictory explanations. This happens everywhere. Again, apologists will say loose translation over here, tight translation over there. Notice this with the kinderhook plates in the gospel topic essay on the kinderhook plates. Joseph apparently examined the plates and according to his clerk, William Clayton, remarked that they contained the history of a descendant of Ham through the loins of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph evidently did not attempt a revelatory translation as he had done with the Book of Mormon plates, but rather appears to have compared the symbols on the kinderhook plates with other ancient artifacts in his possession, the book of Abraham papyri, one Bradley. symbol, one symbol on the plates closely matches a glyph on the Egyptian papyri Joseph translated in Kirtland, Ohio. Right, Joseph Don pre- Bradley
1: arguing that it was an actual attempt to really translate.
0: Yeah, this is Don Bradley and Mark Ashurst McGee right here. Joseph's previous translation of this glyph Mentions a descendant of Ham through the lineage of Pharaoh. What they're what they're self-admitting there is that the book of Abraham is a tight translation.
1: Mm -hmm. Right? Over on the other side, this is the book of Abraham. This is a secular translation. It's not inspired, but the one thing this explanation is not is the catalyst theory. It's not a catalyst
0: theory. Right. This is a literal translation of the book of Abraham papyri. Symbol on the papyri. Equals these words and meanings on the book of Abraham text. So, and that's on the church's website, you say? Yeah. Gospel topic essay on the kinderhook plates. On the other side. Next article. Book of Abraham gospel topic essay. Alternatively, Joseph's study of the papyri may have led to a revelation about key events and teachings in the life of Abraham, much as he had earlier received a revelation about the life of Moses while studying the Bible. This view assumes a broader definition of the words translator and translation. According to this view, Joseph's translation was not a literal rendering of the papyri, as a conventional translation would be. Rather, the physical artifacts provided an occasion for meditation, reflection, and revelation. They catalyzed a process whereby God gave to Joseph Smith a revelation about the life of Abraham even if that revelation did not directly correlate to the characters on the papyri. Mm. So there's that Um, I was
1: looking for Oh, can you go back to that? Because I think that's an exceptionally brilliant point that you just made there, bill, because I was looking for the right, or the article on the right, the second article you read to be about the kinderhood plates. But they're both about the book of Abraham. Really? That's what you're getting at. You're not saying that the kinderhook plates on the one was a secular translation. And in the other article, it was a, a catalyst theory. What you're saying is that the kinderhook plates, this one piece was translated from this one glyph, which is taken directly from the, I'll just say the Abraham Egyptian materials, right? The alphabet and grammar in order to translate that. And if Don Bradley is correct about that, that is anything but a catalyst theory being used for the Book of Abraham.
0: Yeah, the way we solve the Kinderhook problem is making it a secular translation by referencing the use of the Egyptian materials in the Book of Abraham as being the same. When we need to solve the Book of Abraham problem, we create a catalyst theory which then would not work if we went back to the Kinderhook gospel topic essay and tried to carry that over.
1: This is why I love having discussions with you, Bill Real, because you have the capacity of being absolutely brilliant. And I think this is one of those times.
0: Thank you, my friend. And by the way, we posed the same problem to Don Bradley in the live call-in section of our episode on the Kinderhook plates. Don admitted this was problematic To both a revelatory translation mode where Joseph is translating the papyri through the gift and power of God into the book of Abraham. It was also problematic for the catalyst theory. Don assured us then and assured others after the show in the Mormon dialogue and discussion board that he would address that issue in the near future. And I think we're somewhere in the realm of about a year and a half to two years later, and Don Bradley has yet to solve this problem.
1: Well, he's been busy appearing on Midnight Mormons. No, no, no. You mean Ward Radio? No, 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 no. You mean Psych Ward Radio? <laughs> All right,
0: couple little comics while people are loading up the phone bank. Uh, after further review, I'm going to move the goalpost again. <laughs> this one's good. The church isn't true, but you don't. But the, but you never get to get it through the goalpost because they're always moving it. And then this last one had to do with COVID but I thought it pertained as well. I stuck a taper over one of the COVID germs, but uh, I wrote there on the finish line, you figured out the church isn't true, but as long as they keep moving it in front of you, you never get there. Mm. And so um, I'll just say, we'll get to the calls here in a second, but I'll just say kind of wrapping up the episode. The, The title I gave this was, is Mormonism true or is it a fraud and how you can know? And the answer is you can't know. Because the church will all, it doesn't matter what evidence comes into purview. It doesn't matter what science comes forward. It doesn't matter what discoveries are made. The church has given you the playbook. It will always recreate the bullseye bigger. It will always dismiss and not talk about the things that contradict it. It will always avoid a conversation. And hence, no matter what you find, you'll never get to know that it's not true because they will always have a workaround for every damn thing all right anything else from you my friend there otherwise we'll take some calls
1: next week we should have a guest on the show who brought up some inconvenient truths to members in his ward and subsequently was told he could not come back to church he under learned penalty of being arrested and he couldn't have any contact with any members of the church and he couldn't go to any church affiliated properties, basically. And this is in Northern Utah, by the way. So he's basically on house arrest for the rest of his life. <laughs> he he essentially learned the rules of the game. The rules of the game, right. <laughs> yeah. You don't get to talk about this kind of stuff. And if you do, we will make you disappear.
0: Right. All right. We'll go to some phone calls here. Uh, let me unmute the phone bank. Uh, so... Let me check your caller. What's the name?
2: Uh, This is Hiram.
3: Am I on?
0: You're on, Hiram. You're on Mormonism Live.
3: Beautiful. Hey, Bill, RFM, thank you. Um, Thanks for having me on. and Thanks for uh, kind of being some voices that guided me through um, uh, a really lengthy faith transition. I, I really appreciate both of you. Welcome. I feel like this episode kind of summarized some of the dissonance that I felt when I got into, I, I, I guess my gateway issue with the church was the Book of Abraham. Um, Bill, you, I, I had I had never even considered that tenderhook plate connection before. I think that's brilliant. But um, you've been kind of the butt of, of of some jokes in the past about your your phrase "deniable plausibility." But as I listened to this episode, I kept thinking that's exactly what the church apologists are arguing for. They're arguing no longer that things are true, just that they're plausible. And then they're not even they're not even putting a stake in the ground and arguing for those bigger bullseye. They're even as they even as they paint the bigger bullseye, they're saying that it's deniable. Well it." You know, it may be a tight translation, it may be a loose translation, it may be a catalyst. Everything is deniable, um, and anything that suits their own is is plausible.
0: Yeah, leave, leave as many options on the table so that anytime somebody brings up a point that refutes one of them, you can easily just shift over to the other without the safe space with the ability where if we were all in the room and just being open and honest, it would it would have to be an acknowledgement that all of these solutions have damning problems to them. None of them work, but they always only put those forward in spaces where they control the narrative. And hence, they're able to take all flawed solutions, lay them all on the table, and pretend like you have lots of ways in which you can choose to make it work. Yep. Yeah.
3: yeah. And I think that the leaders of the church are complicit in this. I go back and I look at the general conference talks from the Benson and Kimball and even the early Hinckley eras, And these church leaders were taking firm stands on things, even like the Hill Camorra. We've got this letter that's floating around from Gordon B. Hinckley's secretary about the Hill Camora actually being in New York. And over the last Watson 30 letter. years, these leaders have gone completely, Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but over the last 30 years, the leaders have gone completely silent. They're letting the apologists do all the dirty work. They're not taking any firm position. Except... So the goalposts move, so they can deny.
0: Except, Hiram, it's, that on their well-made church videos, when they show the Book of Mormon people... They use Central American uh, architecture to convey that. So they're (laughs) still playing the game. They're just doing it a layer away where they can't quite be held accountable.
1: And if something were to blow up on them and God knows it's happened. Who do you blame? Then they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be blaming the rogue artists. They'd be blaming the rogue movie directors. Those damn movie directors and producers.
0: Thank you, Hiram. I appreciate the phone call.
3: You too. Thank you both. Take I easy. I have a Can lot I... of love and respect for you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: All right. Next call. I don't have a name here. Uh, caller, what's the name?
2: Fad Jefferson.
0: How's it going? Say that again. What's the first name?
2: Fad, like Fabius.
0: Fabius. Fab. Yeah, okay, Fab good. Jefferson. Hey, Fab. How are you? How's
2: it going, guys? Good,
0: good. Go ahead, my Uh, friend.
2: I'm doing all right. I happened upon you, uh, gentlemen, or Mormonism Live about six months ago. I've probably seen maybe a dozen of these, and uh, I really appreciate what you all are doing. Uh, Bill, you were brilliant tonight, your presentation. RFM, you are freaking hilarious. That's all I can tell you. And you guys together are even funnier than that, so uh, thank you for that. Uh, my shelf broke back in uh, May of 2018, and I was a state bank councilman, mm. and uh, I just sort of hid in the church and just sort of bided my time, and then, thank God, the um, pandemic hit, and so then I was able to disappear along with my family for a while and uh, do some more research and find out more things, and just learning all the things that we learned tonight watching your program is just so informational. Really appreciate what y'all are doing and the time that you're spending doing it. And uh, it's made a difference for not only me, but several of my adult children, and uh, also my wife, who continues to uh, go to church with her mother because she's in her 90s and has dementia, and all she can remember is growing up in St. George as a kid, and so she still needs to go. But uh, our whole family has become informed because of of you all and uh, John Bolin and the rest of them. And I just wanted to call and say thank you. For what you're doing and the information that you're putting out there to help all of us understand that all those things we learned in the '70s, growing up where everything was perfect, only to find out for me—I mean, it was just a couple of years ago when I found out that Joseph Smith had multiple wives and many of them were teenagers—that blew my mind. I never heard that in my entire life, and um, yeah, that was that was really hard to swallow because it was the whole polygamy thing that years ago I remember. A talk that was given um, actually when I was a state high councilman and someone started talking about polygamy. And I leaned over to my wife and I said, Oh, yeah, that's something I don't quite understand or can't comprehend and I don't accept. And I said, If we end up one day uh, and there's two doors, you go through one and there's eternal salvation and the celestial kingdom and polygamy, and the other door is just, you know, monogamy or whatever. I said, I'm going through that second door, and I hope to find you on the other side. Mm. And uh, my wife just kind of... That's me ...and said thank you or whatever. And that was just my understanding just kind of over the years because every time Polygamy came up, I had to, like, just ah, push it way down deep and get rid of it because it was, it was mortifying. It just tore me apart. And, and, again, I heard all those things like, oh, it's just because, and you guys mentioned earlier tonight, you know, coming across the plains it was so difficult, but all the men were dying. So, you know, uh, these women, just, you know, they needed a husband and this and that. And those are things that we heard. And we heard that all the time. And not once was it ever brought, it was Brigham Young that was the polygamous. It certainly wasn't Joseph. But then to find out the predatory practices and uh, hearing about some of the journal entries of these young girls who were given ultimatums that if you know you got 24 hours to figure this out and your turtle salvation and not only that but uh, your extended family is is on the line as well that's just predatory as can be and um anyway i just really appreciate all the information that you're bringing forward and and the time that you take to put in these presentations i will keep watching them i'll keep sharing them with other people And I just had to call and say, y'all are awesome. Thank you so much. We really appreciate
0: it. Hey, just one little quick note. You've been listening for about six months. Um, Everything that we talked about, every slide that we talked about tonight, almost assuredly every one of them is a in-depth past episode of Mormonism Live. And uh, and Radio Free Mormon uh, has done a whole host of work before coming aboard and us doing this show. Uh, And some of those issues have been covered there. Mormon Discussions also covered them. For folks who are listening who are new to this, if any of these issues you're you don't you're not really sure of, you don't know exactly how uh, these issues uh, get deconstructed, what's really going on there, there's almost assuredly somewhere behind us uh, a two-hour episode where we're dissecting every one of those issues on their own. And I would encourage anybody who wants to understand whether we're being honest with you, telling the truth, go back to the original sources. Go back and read the quotes that I pulled from. I had ellipses in some of those. I I want you to go read that and to find what was those ellipses replaced to make this quote a little shorter, because I'm not hiding anything from you. One side here playing the game is hiding things from you. They are lying to you. And and folks can paint Radio Free Mormon and myself as the bad guys, but we are the truth tellers. We are the whistleblowers, and we're the ones telling you the truth. And uh, so we've done lots of work in the past on every one of these issues, I think, just about every one of them and uh, would encourage folks to go check out those older episodes of Mormonism live. All right. I'll hang up with you, my friend. Uh, Thanks, we got, Fab. Thanks we got for calling in. Here. Like George
1: Orwell said in a time of universal deceit, speaking the truth is a revolutionary act.
0: All right. Next call here is Jenny. Jenny, are you there?
4: Yeah. Hi guys. Good evening. Hi Jenny.
0: Glad to have you aboard. What's on your mind? Uh,
4: I really like, um, well, I like how you guys tied last week's episode into this week's and the term that um, RFM brought up in what modern apologists are doing these days and that they retreat from the specifics, you know, and how now they're saying that things aren't literal like they used to teach. You know, I was raised in the literal church in that everything from Joseph Smith was from God. Everything that came out of the prophet's mouth was from God. And the Book of Mormon literally happened. And so, you know, finding out that it couldn't literally happen was enough, you know, and so many things were enough for me. And you know, seeing how people just stay in the church after being given this information and just still trying to justify it, you know, um, retreating from the specifics, you know, coming in to the argument with only being able to see the perspective of it's true. You know, when when you go into any type of experiment you know you don't go in thinking you know one outcome specific like you have a hypothesis but you also like think about different outcomes but when you when these people teach that you have to go in only believing that it's true it's just the craziest brainwashing you know and um i guess everybody's a little different you know because i i it, it's just you know everything just kind of crept up to me at an early age uh causing me to leave but thank you guys so much for all you do and you know it's I learn more every time I listen to you guys every week I, I learn more and connect more with you know the truth you know and what really happens like historically
0: Appreciate that, Jenny. You
4: know, there would be things at the Hill Cumorra, you know, like I've been to the Hill Cumorah, there would be like, like you said, a whole excavation site, you know, of the war there, you know, with just a stone armor, box under the ground,
0: horses. just something, yeah, I'm sorry, that's Jenny, I say, it. or even just
4: a and stone box under the ground, well, right? Traveled, yeah, they're saying he traveled all the way up from Mesoamerica solo now, you know, I don't think so. I don't think Maroon, I hiked, you know, the continent, you know, and then took off. You know, I don't. And now they're saying, well, there wasn't golden plates. He just put his head in his hat. Yeah. And and people still buy it. You know, people still buy it because they come in with that perspective of it's true.
1: Right. The one answer that cannot be reached is it's not true. When you remove the obvious yeah, that's answer from that, the chat. Uh, yeah.
4: That's what that Dan Bradley, is that his name?
1: That's was what he Bradley. Was
4: saying. Yeah, Don Bradley. I was curious, you know, I wonder what these, you know, wackadoos are talking about on, you know, Midnight Ward Radio, whatever they're, you know, uh, wart radio, because you just, can't seem to get rid of them like a wart you know you they delete them and then they keep coming back maybe that's what it's supposed to be titled anyway he was on there and he was saying like i used to come into the idea when i used to think that maybe joseph smith was a fraud i used to come into the idea of polygamy in that you know he was just trying to get laid but now i come into this idea in that He couldn't possibly be fraudulent. He had to be funny. So now I figure out like how to prove this. And it's like, oh, it's like, it's really sad.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. He adopted
0: the Kerry Molstein method.
1: Um, And, you know, Don Bradley he's a personal friend of mine. Um, People have the idea that he uh, was a regular Mormon, left the church, came back. He's a regular Orthodox Mormon. Uh, I don't know if Don Bradley's ever been a standard Orthodox Mormon in his entire life. He certainly isn't now, but he is a believing Mormon and I say, God bless him. Everybody has their own path. I think we should all do what makes us, uh, I almost said feel good, but what we think is right, the right thing to do. And which may differ between different people and it can differ within the same person over a course of a lifetime, like it has with me. So, uh. But yeah, I don't I don't know exactly where he's coming from, but I hear what you're saying. The point I was making a little bit earlier <clears throat> is this: is that once you've taken the obvious conclusion off the table, all you're left with is trying to decide which of the remaining conclusions is the least absurd. Yeah. And the least ridiculous. And then yeah. you try and find the one that's the least ridiculous, and that's going to be your conclusion.
0: That's the most rational answer. Yeah. Thanks, Jenny.
4: Yeah, thank you, guys.
0: Sweet. All right. Last one. Uh this is Nolan. Nolan. Yeah. Nolan, how are you? Hello. How are you, my friend? Got that. Hi uh
2: well. You, uh,
1: appreciate I'm that a last postcard. Second time my friend. Caller. Yeah. Good is this hey. postcard
2: Nolan? Always uh you got it. Okay. So keep it quiet. Keep it quiet. <laughs> But, uh, um, uh, great show tonight.
0: <laughs>
2: um, I thought I'd just share three little, uh, anecdotes directly related to, uh, what, what the show's tonight about, huh?
0: Please. You, you can hear me. Okay. Oh, yeah. Great. Number so one, all
2: these, all these new, all these new temples, uh, they're going up, you know, apostles go out and they give firesides and they're trying to, you know, drum up, drum up support. they, they. They stand up and they talk and people listen, like like uh, moles who have moles. Um, So recently, uh, Elder Gong said that, uh, you know, these new temples is just the beginning.
3: That the you know, it's just the
2: beginning of all the great things that are that are about to happen. But meanwhile, two or three years prior, you have GA 70s telling the same people that, we are in the last seconds of the last days, that it's like all about to end. Right. And then president Nelson says, we're, we're running out of time. So, well, so which is it, right? Which is it? Do we have lots of time or are, are we, uh, you know, is it all going to come to an end here? The six, answer six, Nolan six. is yes. Second, Yes, exactly. <laughs> second, second, second thing. Second thing, uh, <laughs> uh, Recent fireside, Elder Dong, I mean, he didn't even mention the word Joseph Smith, never even mentioned his name, and he he could barely even utter the word Mormon. He had to say it when he said the Book of Mormon, that no evil man could write the Book of Mormon and no honest man would write the Book of Mormon with the intent to deceive. That was it, 20 minutes of talking, that's all he could say, okay?
1: And Parley P. Pratt said it before him.
2: Yeah, exactly, and I did not know that. Okay, so last one. Uh, this is this is relates to the temple stuff. Uh, you were talking about, you know, the, the the exactness and how the temple cannot be changed, this, that, and the other, right? So uh, when they open these new temples, they've got to train all these new people, right? Who's never had a temple before? They got to train them. And uh, they put bugs in the walls in the in the temple, so people hear. I'll kind of, you can hear what's going on. And uh, I'm sorry, Nolan. They, they actually, put bugs in
1: the walls.
2: It's, well, uh, it's metaphorical, right? It's metaphorical, okay. sort of like, uh, um, like I said, moles have moles. You know, um, my point is this: they tell people that they're training that one of their purposes is to make sure the ordinances are done with exactness, okay? That when they do all this stuff in the temple, it has to be done with exactness.
1: Otherwise, And that's
2: one of the reasons or one of the purposes, yeah, yeah, one of the purposes of, you know, the temple workers. And mm-hmm. so I just find that kind of interesting.
0: Right, which is it? Does, do the ordinances need to be done with exactness or are they allowed to be altered every so often?
2: Yeah, yeah, you know, it's kind of funny. Well, anyway, you, you've already covered it. So. No, that's
1: a great one, Nolan. The answer anyway, to that one is yes as it, well. Yes. Yes, they must be performed yeah. with exactness yes. now yes. for them to have efficacy, but they can also be changed and still have efficacy. Bow your head, though. Bow your head and say
0: yes.
2: Right.
1: That part yeah, will never yeah, change.
2: Yeah, yeah, it, Anyway, it... it, it anyway I just uh wanted to call I haven't called for a, well I, I i've been i've been with been you while. from the beginning you guys do a great shoot you guys do a great show I'm happy to support and and uh anyway that's uh i got it out i i'm, I'm it's always great to, to to interact with you
1: thanks nolan have a great day thank Mr. you nolan thanks for watching
0: Okay. did he said, uh, you know, he's happy to support us folks. If you love the stuff we put out and I hope you do, or even if you uh, we, just like it a little, we, we put a lot of time and energy into this. Um, probably RFM. I should say certainly RFM more than me. Uh, I would really appreciate, and I know he would, if folks would go to MormonismLive.org, click the donate button and uh, send us a few bucks again, five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month would be much appreciated. Um, uh, we operate on those funds. That's how, that's how we have the time to put into this. And, and we put, I think a really good, uh, effort and energy into trying to find things that no one else has found trying to, which we've done dozens and dozens of times at this point, RFM, um, to go into history like nobody else does to, uh, find conversations to have with you so that, uh, so that you can understand these issues. Uh, well enough to make informed uh, decisions and, and uh, informed uh, actions in your life uh, that you maybe didn't have the clarity to do before. Uh, And we think that's a value and I hope that you find that value too. And we'd really appreciate your support. Anything else from you, my friend?
1: Great show tonight, Bill. This was Bill's show tonight and he has worked harder on tonight's show than I have um but that doesn't mean i haven't done anything he's just really really worked hard on tonight's show and i give him a lot of credit and he's come up with at least one if not more brilliant ideas that had not occurred to me and that's one of the reasons i watch the show regularly as well so i can learn things
0: love it everybody have a great day we appreciate every one of you those who support us those of you tune in to listen or watch uh whether you listen on the podcast format audio format or whether you watch on youtube the video we we just deeply appreciate every one of you it it really makes this fun to have you go on the ride with us where we can share the things we're thinking about and to to be able to see that you're getting something from that and and we're really we're both really grateful to have this time to spend with you and we look forward to seeing every one of you next week